on this episode of This Calling. I think it's okay to tell God no, at least in the short term, because I think God will keep working on us until we say yes. And so it's okay to wrestle with God because God's going to win, but that's always a good thing, you know? And I'm glad God didn't give up on me. Welcome to This Calling, conversations about vocation. I'm Chris Arnold, a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. These are the calling stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I talked to Mother Melanie Rowell. Mother Melanie started out as a professional singer and music professor before finding the Episcopal Church and the priesthood. She currently serves as a school chaplain in Atlanta. Here's our conversation. Hello, yes, I am the chaplain of Holy Innocence Lower School in Atlanta, Georgia. Hmm. Home of Coca-Cola and a very fine aquarium. Yes. Okay, so your school chaplain, what is a lower school? Is that an age range? Like, Yes, so we have primary school, which is three to five, lower school, which is one to fifth grade, first through fifth grade, the middle school, which is sixth grade through eighth grade, and the high school or the upper school, they call it, which is nine through 12. So you're the so chaplain. So I am responsible Sorry. Go ahead. You're responsible. I'm the chaplain for the first through fifth graders, and I I do chapel for them about once a week. Sometimes it's, you know, for sometimes it doesn't happen because of reasons, but essentially once a week. And usually it's morning prayer. Sometimes it's a Eucharist. It hasn't been Eucharist, obviously, for quite yeah. some time. We've all been at home. Are there chaplains for the other, different chaplains for the other schools? Yes, we have two other chaplains, the middle school chaplain, and then the upper school chaplain, who is also the head chaplain and the primary school chaplain. So he has multiple roles. This must be a pretty big school if you've got three chaplains. It's about 1,300 students, and it's the largest Episcopal day school in the United States. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> That's like it, it was, yeah. uh, nearly 10 times the size of the school that I graduated high school, from which I graduated high school, which was a pretty small private school. But um, I, have about, I have about 300 children in my care, plus the faculty and the staff and the parents and that stuff. Well, I'm formulating all all sorts of questions about what it's like to be a chaplain for that age range. But let's cover some of the other basics first. You are a priest in the Episcopal Church? Yes. And you haven't always been a priest in the Episcopal Church. So I want to dig into your whole life story and how you got to where you are. But let's talk about being a chaplain to... Ten year olds. <laughs> oh, what so what fun. is that? 
<laughs> what is that like digging into their I mean, do they do they have spiritual lives? Do they have oh, questions okay. about Jesus? So most of uh, most of the children who go to the school are not Episcopalian. Mm-hmm. I'd say by I mean we have any anyone is welcome to attend. It's not a you don't have to be a Christian to attend, but I'd say most of the families who are involved at the school are they at least put Christian down on their form when they register their children for school. Mm-hmm. And so that that can mean a very wide range of Christian practices or even people who go to church once a year and really aren't practicing Christians at all. Mm-hmm. So that's a real challenge sometimes. Um, but it's also a lot of fun because children are a lot more open-minded than adults. And hmm. so if I tell them that Jesus rose from the dead— I might get one or two fifth graders every once in a while who will say, well, how do we know that? Or do you really believe that? Or exactly explain to me exactly why, how is Jesus in the bread and the wine? And I'm thinking, Oh boy, you know, <laughs> these are questions that have been asked throughout all of Christian history child. And like, you want yeah. me to explain it to you in two minutes. Um, but it's, it's just extremely satisfying because they believe you they they love you they trust you they want to do they want to please you for the most part so when we have chapels uh those are a lot of fun because children want to be involved they want to be in the service they want to do a good job so i i have almost no trouble in fact i have more children volunteer for chapel then I have spaces to put them in Hmm. anything from carrying, you know, being the crucifer, carrying the cross to reading scripture to whatever they, they all, they all want to do it. And if it involves a skit or something that's a little bit, (laughs) you know, off the grid. And these are things I get to do as a school chaplain that I would never get to do as a parish priest. I mean, can you imagine doing a skit as part of church, like in in Mm -hmm. most Episcopal churches? No, not it, you know. well. <laughs> so, and because I have a go, go. What were you going to say? Because I have I have a performing background. All the skits and the teaching children how to read expressively and have presence in front of a congregation is something that I have a lot of experience with, and I enjoy. And the kids enjoy it. They enjoy getting up there. And doing something that maybe terrified them, but they realize that they can get up there and do it. Hmm. And it's it's a very it's a very satisfying thing to watch a child grow spiritually and in other ways just by being involved in chapel. You're also serving as a a chaplain somehow to the to the parents and to the faculty and staff. So yes. Uh Many families have their own churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so sometimes I sort of play a role that's almost just as an, as an assisting type of cleric or someone who will look in on them to make sure if something is happening, if, the, if a child is sick or whatever, they've got their own pastor 
But in some cases, families are not super involved in their churches or they haven't been for a long time or they sort of look at the school as their parish and me as their priest. So it really sort of depends on the situation. But I I always try to err on the side of, you know, being there, sending a card, visiting in the hospital, sometimes not knowing if that child, parent, faculty member has a priest or pastor in their lives. So that must require you to be pretty flexible with like what level of Christian language you bring in, right, to a a conversation. Because you can't just like... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I I grew up evangelical, so I can... I can just, I don't have to have the prayer book, although I love the prayer book and I'm very, I'm actually very, very high church when it comes right down to it. But if I I sort of feel out where the the child parent, whoever the person is, and I, I just sort of go with Hmm. what feels right for that person. How do you feel that out? Like, do you have questions that you ask or do you just kind of hint at something and see what the response is or yeah, I mean, sometimes I will ask them, you know, do you want me to say a prayer for you? If I know the family is Episcopalian, like I might actually, you know, go into something a little more liturgical or structured. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I know enough about the family to know. And other times I just have to ask, you know, so what does your week look like? You said there's chapel, Right. But that doesn't take up all your time. So are you going from class to class or teaching religious studies or something? Very, pretty much. I, it, before the pandemic hit, a typical week would be, you know, me, I have a co-teacher and we teach a class that's called at the school Global Faith and Service. And essentially that's a big umbrella term for me teaching about Christianity and about uh, the Episcopal church specifically sometimes, depending on what the lesson is. Also my co-teacher and I sometimes teach about other religions too, because this is mostly, these kids are mostly Protestant Christians. Mm -hmm. So they don't know a lot about other religions for the moment, you know, not any fault of their own, just it's where, the area in which we live. And we also do service projects, which is mostly the, in the domain of my co-teacher. She will have them make sandwiches for an organization here in town. They'll get gloves on and put sandwiches together and we'll take them down to, I, I can't remember the organization's name, but she, she's pretty much spearheads all of the service projects and she does all kinds of stuff. So it's a class that that sort of envelops all of those things. Mm -hmm. And I, some of the lessons I teach, some of them she teaches, some of them we co-teach. And I do chapel once a week with the kids. And you also are attached to a a parish, right? You're at St. Columbus? Correct. So you're presiding and preaching there? Sometimes yes. just once a yeah. month or something. Yeah, I I usually 
it's about once a month. I, it, I'm no, what's known as an assisting priest, which means I'm not technically on staff. I just kind of, that's where I hang out when I don't have another supply <laughs> job. <laughs> it's important so, to, it's important to be connected to a parish, I think. I think it is too. And the, the rector there has been very kind and more or less, if there's something, if there's a particular Sunday I want to preach or a particular thing that I've never done that I, that, you know, he, like this Sunday, he said, Hey, how about doing prayer D, you know, mm-hmm. and I've never done sung prayer D as a priest because I'm a baby. I'm a baby priest. <laughs> Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So it's been a very good, it allows me to preach to adults, which is very different from preaching to children, as you might imagine. Mm. I can't, when I'm preaching with, for children, I have to keep it about at about five minutes and have some sort of object or skit or shtick. Uh, and I have to keep it down to about one point because that's about all the first graders can deal with. And Preaching to adults is obviously, you kind of have to have a little bit more there. So it's been really good to sort of stretch my preaching muscles in both directions. So baby priest. Yes. When were you, when were you ordained? I was ordained in June of 2018 here in the good old ATL. So coming up on two years. Yes. June what? I, I was ordained a deacon in, on June 12th. 23rd. Okay. Is that someone's feast day? 23rd. It it was not listed as a feast day on our huh. on our calendar. When's so John the Baptist? Is that July? It doesn't matter. I'm not going to look it up. <laughs> So you haven't been a priest very long, and you weren't a priest your whole life. Did you have a career before ordination? Before, well, ordination to the priesthood? I did. Uh, I have three degrees in music. Three? Three. Bachelor's, master's, and doctorate. Good grief. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I I did a lot of performing and it's it's kind of a long story, but at a certain point I realized that I wasn't able to make a consistent amount of money performing as most a lot of performers have that problem unless you're you're getting constant gigs on Broadway or something. So I went back to school and got my doctorate so I could teach at the college level. And then I continued to perform as a college professor, but sort of, you know, in and amongst my teaching because I've always loved music. Music is, has always been a huge part of my life. And I've discovered as a child and a teenager that I, what I wasn't, I don't think I was as naturally gifted as some people, but I was willing to work hard enough to get it. Hmm. So I did. Yeah, it's it always seems to be a combination of a little bit of talent and a lot of hard work. 
That's pretty accurate. So you're teaching music, music performance, music theory, music what what tell me tell mostly, me about that. Mostly my job has been teaching people to, how to sing. Hmm. Many of whom really had no clue how to sing correctly or even well because I I was kind of in the same boat where I had a you know a little hmm. bit of talent but a lot of desire and so I I enjoyed it. I was good at it. I also taught, you know, just various whatever music classes needed to be taught, like music history or music appreciation. I taught theory at one point, but just whatever, you know, a music degree at the college level, especially a small college, means that you will teach whatever they need you to teach. Mm. So, I would love to know about the transition from the from being a professional musician to being a priest. But let's start all the way back at the beginning. You grew up Episcopalian or some other kind of Christian or in in the church at all, I guess. No, I, sh- I, I shouldn't I assume. I grew up evangelical Protestant. And Religion was always a huge part of our lives. I was at church all the time, Hmm. all day, Sunday, Sunday, both, you know, Sunday school, Sunday church. We had Sunday night services, Wednesday night services, and then we had revival meetings. Good grief. Did you enjoy it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I, yeah, I, early on, I could tell like that, I, especially the 45 hour long sermons, I didn't particularly enjoy. Um, and then around, you know, I, I'm older than I look. I grew up in the seventies and eighties. So the Royal weddings, uh, the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana and the wedding of Sarah Ferguson and Andrew, you know, came on. And I, I got videotapes, and that tells you how, how old school <laughs> I am, videotapes of these weddings, and I watched them over and over again because I had never, I never realized that there were churches, that, you know, this is before the internet, right? There were churches that looked like this, that had these big booming pipe organs, and that people actually worshipped like this. I mean, I know these were weddings and all the stops were pulled out, but I could tell that the the ministers, I didn't know what to call them priests. That wasn't part of my vocabulary unless you were Roman Catholic, that these, all these people had on these gorgeous robes. You know, I didn't know they were vestments. I didn't even know that word. I just knew that all this stuff was beautiful and amazing and that I liked the ceremony and the ritual. And that was something that didn't exist in my world of church. So it's the pageantry drew you in. I think pageantry like that sounds like it was very superficial. That makes me think of pageant like a, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, very everything for show. But I guess what, what attracted me was this idea of being very reverent and deliberate and everything being done for a reason. And that stuck with me, even though I didn't really know how to make the jump from where I was to a church like that. And indeed, it would have been discouraged in my 
denomination and in my family. How old were you when this was this kind of new awakening was going on? I was a teenager. Okay. Brothers so and sisters? I have one brother who's two years younger. Mm. And he that not not interested in that sort of thing. So where did you go from there? Did you just kind of keep this flame of interest alive until you could find a way to feed it? Or did you sneak out of the house like some people and <laughs> check out other churches? Not- <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I was always secretly fascinated with other churches. And if I saw something on television, like a Roman Catholic mass, like it immediately drew my attention, but I didn't, there wasn't a practical way to attend a church like this. Mm. Um, I also have to say that it was this during my whole childhood and early, in even later teen years, I, I struggled with the idea of being called into ministry. And in my denomination, that wasn't for a woman that wasn't a no, no, but I never saw a woman up front as the pastor, I never saw a woman in a leadership position in my church. So that didn't seem possible. So the only route for ministry for me seemed to be missionary work. And I didn't really feel called to that either. But I decided really fast that this if being a pastor meant that I had to do the things and and be in the sort of worship experience that I was accustomed to growing up, that wasn't something that I wanted for myself. And I I couldn't fathom being a pastor's wife, which meant that you essentially played the piano and baked casseroles (laughs) and led Sunday school. Like I didn't see myself as being that either. So there wasn't a, like this, this, what I have on, like the collar, the, the cassock, the, like that, which just was not that, that wasn't a, anything that I could aspire to. That wasn't even in my consciousness. There was nothing to see that, of that, that I could become something like that. But the, so, the, some wheels were turning about a sense of calling. Like you're asking these questions. The wheels were turning, but I, I just pretty much told God that I, I couldn't do that. And besides, this is going to sound really horrible. I didn't want anybody telling me what I could do with my life. I didn't want God telling me. I didn't want my parents telling me. I didn't, you know, teenage rebellion. I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'll show you. I'll be a good musician and I can serve God being a musician or being a fireman or being a school teacher or a doctor. Like all these people love Jesus. Why do I have to be a preacher? (laughs) <laughs> it's a fair question. <laughs> so, so I didn't. I, I, I said, no, I'm going to be a musician. And I put all of my energy to that. And I think I was a good one. Until it caught up with me. Until it caught up with you. But still, I think, you know, not, not everybody has, I mean, I think even people who grow up in very committed church 
contexts don't necessarily wrestle with the question of whether they're called to it. So, and you seem to have been wrestling with it, even if you were pushing it away. And a lot of these people that I talked to for this podcast make it sound as though they were pushing away a calling. Oh, I was definitely pushing it away. And, but, but, you know, it wasn't acceptable to tell God no. So I sort mm-hmm. of, if this, this makes any sense, like I just sort of stayed inside myself and sort of hoped that maybe God would not notice me and go away and stop messing with me on this. Like that maybe if I ignored it, you know, if you ignore it, it goes away. Yeah. But it, you know, <laughs> but it doesn't. And so all, you know, I would sit through sermons as a child where the, the, the preacher would boom out, someone here is wrestling with a call. And I would think, not me. It's not me. I'm not wrestling with a call. Nope. Hmm. But you were. <laughs> I definitely was. So how did you wind up moving from that church to whatever came next? Did you go from that to the Episcopal Church or have you been on a journey Well, I became, I was actually baptized in the Episcopal Church in 1994 when I finished with college and I was getting my master's degree and I met the man who is now my husband, who was unchurched. And he was not interested in going to those, you know, hellfire and brimstone places and was pretty much anti-church. And then we stumbled into an Episcopal church at some point. And I, and, you know, in the back of my mind were probably the Royal weddings. And I think I'd been, I visited an Episcopal church once and I'd said, you know, why don't we, why don't we just try this church, this stone church here? Uh, it looks pretty decent. It's, it says it's an Episcopal church. You know, I've had a good experience one time when I went to an Episcopal church. So, you know, I, I think they're okay, but, let's go and see because I'd never attended one on a regular basis. I just like, it was like a one, one visit type of thing Mm -hmm. when I was in college. And so we, we walked in and we never looked back. We were both, both baptized and confirmed. Wow. So had you kept on going to church regularly all the way through college or did you do what a lot of people do and, kind of take a break. I I never really took a break. I became because I was a musician, I ended up being employed hmm. by a church in college that was a Methodist church, which was fine, and then I got a job in when I was getting my master's degree also at a Methodist church. And so I ended up knowing a lot about the Methodist church, but enough to know that I, that's not really where I felt like I was going to end up. Did you find liturgical worship uh, jarring, a shock to the system, a steep learning curve? So another part of this story is that I had a Roman Catholic boyfriend in college. Hmm. (laughs) So uh, my first exposure to the mass was a guitar mass, a Vatican II guitar mass on a college campus. And so to me, that was high church because I had never been – other than my one-off visit to the Episcopal church, I'd never been in a church that was that where the, the service was that structured. 
Yeah. where the priest would say something and then everybody would give the response and they all seemed to know what they were saying or what was supposed to come next. And I was looking around going, they're going to think they're going to know I'm the only Protestant here. You know? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was kind of terrifying, but at the same time I was completely fascinated. And of course, as a musician, I'd studied the mass in music history. And so it was not, it was not completely foreign, but it took a lot of, it just took a lot of getting used to, but it was odd in that to me in that all the people, you know, that everyone knew what to say and when to say it and they knew when to cross themselves. And I didn't, you know, I felt like a little bit, a little bit like a stranger in a strange land, but at the same time I was very intrigued mm-hmm. and it wasn't so off putting that, that I, that I didn't go back because I kept going back. And I kept asking questions and I kept sort of delving into it, trying to figure out, is, is this really the direction I want to go in? Do I want to become a Roman Catholic or where do I want to go with that? Obviously you didn't. You became Episcopalian. Yes. And then what? So you've, you're graduating with your master's degree. You meet the man who would later become your husband and the two of you wind up baptized in the Episcopal Church. That's yes. a pretty decisive, big set of things all happening, what, all in the same year? <laughs> pretty close to give us within, I mean, we were baptized, confirmed, and got married within about a three-year span. It's a lot of change. Yeah. It's stuck. We're still married. Good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> we're still Episcopalian. <laughs> Good. So then did you head straight off to a doctorate right away or did you, you worked as a performing musician for a while? I did a lot of performing. I did some adjunct teaching. I did, I taught private lessons. I worked at a church. I I worked for that Methodist church for, for a really long time, even while I was Episcopalian. So I would go to the work at the Methodist church and then we would race across town <laughs> uh, to the Episcopal Church and catch like the last thirty minutes of that mass, and it, it was a strange way to live. But anyway, yeah, a lot of people do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then you wind up working on your doctorate, right? What on earth made you decide to pursue a doctorate? It's all my friends say that you shouldn't get a doctorate unless you obviously can't live without it because it's hell. (laughs) Yeah, it is hell. And I didn't want, I didn't want it, but I wasn't, I I kept trying to get jobs in colleges and I kept not getting them because I did not have a terminal degree. Mm. So, and financially that I needed to be making a full-time income. So that's, that's why I did. And then I ended up getting a college job, which was good and taught, taught in two different colleges for about 14 or 15 years. Hmm. And I enjoyed it. Um, But I found like in my college job that I had right before I went to seminary, I found it was a Christian college and I found myself 
teaching a voice lesson and it would turn into some sort of spiritual counseling session, or I would get asked questions about the Bible or about my church, which was different from most of theirs. They would, well, what is Episcopal? Like, what do you guys do? How, how is, (laughs) how, how are your beliefs different from what all, you know, the Baptists believe? What, what are those differences? Or, or students would come in and say, um, Dr. Rowell, I, um, I'm gay. Like, what do I, like, what do I do? Am I going to go to hell? And so I, I started finding that I was really enjoying a lot of these interactions and these conversations and, and helping students in their faith and, and encouraging them. And I guess sort of in a way offering what you might call bootleg spiritual direction, even though I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I, I heard more bootleg confessions as a layperson that weren't real confessions. So I don't want all the priests out there. Don't think I was not granting people absolution as a lay person, <laughs> but students would come in and say, you know, I, I did this. What do I do? And because they were racked with guilt and that those things, those things, uh, I guess, widened that that door that I tried to slam shut about being a minister because I started doing those things even though I wasn't as a layperson. I started doing things for people that I would later do as a priest. Hmm. If that makes any sense. I don't, I don't, I don't think I was not doing anything sacramental. So again, all the priests out there can rest. Like <laughs> I, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to do things that I shouldn't have been doing, but I was a person that these students came to for these types of reasons. And they felt like they could ask me these questions. I think again and again, I hear in these conversations that I have with people that other people see in us the gifts that we can't see in ourselves. And it sounds like that's what was going on for you, this like pastoral spiritual wisdom that people could just sense in you. Well, I, I really went in, I, I went into it kicking and screaming at one point on my door, I put something like, this is a voice lesson. You know, it's not, it's not time to go through your personal issues or something like that. <laughs> I can't believe I even put that up. But I was so, I was so determined when I started teaching at the college level that I was not, that I was their teacher. I was there to teach them good vocal technique and how to be a good musician and how to write a good program note. I was not, I was not their counselor. Mm-hmm. But, you know, despite my, again, like as a child, when I was kept saying no to God, you know, I think God was actually kind of up there or down here saying, well, actually, you know, and <laughs> kind of, I kind of ended up doing it, even though I said I didn't, that's not what I wanted to do. So you broke, wanted, uh, you broke down eventually and wound up ordained. So how did that, how did that happen? Uh, let's see. I mean, the long and the short of it is the, that what you said, what you just said about people seeing 
in ourselves, the things that we often don't see, people started coming up to me and saying, um, you know, are you, are you going to be a pre, are you going to, no, they would say, are you, have you thought about, you know, you're a college professor, but are you really going to do that your whole life? And I would say, yeah, it will. I, you know, I just don't see you doing that. And and I would think, yeah, yeah, you do, <laughs> you know, like, and then like, you know, well, I just see you being like a, um, what do you call it? Past pastor, minister? What do you what do you call it in your denomination? I said priest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see you do, like doing that. And and I thought, I mean, in my brain, because that you know, all those thoughts had already occurred to me, and I thought, no, Jesus, no, I don't want to do that. Like I've, I, I'm at a college, I'm good at what I do. I had tenure. Hmm. I had tenure, and I'd just been elected faculty member of the year the year before. And I thought, I can't do this. I can't give up a job that will stay that I can keep for the rest of my life. And I never have to worry about losing it unless, you know, I do something really, really horrible, which I wasn't going to do. I've got this job forever. I can't give that job up to go be a priest. You got a terminal degree and everything. Right. (laughs) That's a lot of work to keep God at bay, you know. (laughs) But I, you know, God is relentless. Mm -hmm. And so those people kept coming to me. People kept saying things. And finally, and, and, and I have to say that the, it was, it was like a fire inside of me that would never, I, I couldn't put it out. And I, at first I thought, Oh, I just need to go to church more. Oh, I just need to, Oh, the rosary. That's a pretty cool thing. They I'll, I'll start praying that. Oh, I'm going to try. I'm going to try fasting. That's, that's a good thing to do. Maybe if I do all of these things, all these spiritual things and I become more spiritual, God will leave me alone because God will see that I'm doing all this stuff and that I'm perfectly spiritual without going down that other path. that I don't even want to think about and it was like pouring gasoline on a fire, <laughs> right? I mean, all those spiritual things, just like it just made it harder and harder to deal with and harder to look at myself in the mirror and say, is this really, are you really going to be able to live with yourself if you don't at least figure out where this is going to go? Wow. So what kind of conversations did you wind up having with the priests at your parish? Uh. I, you know, I I went, the first time I had a conversation, there were so many factors in my life that pro that would prohibit me from going through the process that we had the conversation and it, and, and it just dropped because my husband was in school and I, we couldn't move. Like there was no way I could go to seminary. But then fairly quickly, all of that resolved itself, like within a year or two and a couple of other things happened. And it's, it's a long story. Like we changed bishops, which causes everything to get put on hold. So everything got put on hold. And, and so finally, when I, when I did go through the process, it was actually probably three years after that initial conversation. Um, and my priest at, at the parish said, because I, I, 
I asked him, I said, how, I was really hoping I would go to him and he would say, oh, Melanie, you're not called. Just go home and, and be a good Christian. And that's not what he said. He said, I can't tell you whether or not you are definitely called like that. I can't, I can't speak to that. And that was not the answer I wanted. I wanted him to just say no and send me home. So, so finally, when I was allowed to go through the process, it was, it was multiple years later, but I, I, I did, I, you know, I walked into a room with probably 40 other people and I heard my bishop say, well, we're only picking eight, eight out of 40. And I (laughs) looked around at all the people in the room and I thought, there's no way I'm never going to make it. And I was, you know, I was kind of laughing at God at that point. I'm just like, see, like you, you did this and now I'm here and there are 40 people here and they're only picking eight. I'm never going to make it. Wow. But you made it. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any regrets? No. Okay, then. No, I, you know, it's one of those things where you think to yourself, I, I don't know why I, I don't know why I pushed so hard. I don't know why I resisted it so much. I mean, definitely all the other paths that I've been down make me the person I am today. And I, all of the experiences that I've had in my music degrees, they help me be a better priest. And all the experiences I had with college students, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade them because I think they make me, they have uniquely, uniquely equipped me to be the priest that I am today. But I, you know, sometimes I do wonder what would have happened if I just said yes to God when I was 24. I don't know. What was it like going to seminary with all this like experience being faculty and then suddenly you're a student again? It was hard. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the I went to Sewanee. Uh, so I think the professors appreciated the, I mean, it was definitely, it was definitely to an advantage because I had done a lot of writing and having written, uh, they don't call it a dissertation in my degree. They call it a document, but essentially it's like a small dissertation. Having to write one of those changes you and makes you a much better writer of anything. And so my writing skills, just having those was a huge benefit, but being, you know, all of a sudden you're used to being at the top. You're the professor, you're calling the shots. You've got the students, you're telling people what to do. And I, I also um, directed musicals at my college. So like I was used to just calling the shots, like, all right, we're going to, we're going to do this show and you're going to do this and you're going to go there. And then I'm conducting the orchestra and everything and going from that to being, being in a field where you know nothing or very little. I mean, I, I did have a good grasp of the Bible, but I didn't have a philosophy degree, which a lot of, you know, several of my col- colleagues and members of my class had degrees in philosophy or religion or, or Greek or Latin. And I had none of that. So I could sing. 
I could chant really well, but I didn't know any of that other stuff. And so that, that was hard because I didn't think that I was ever going to go back to school again. In fact, I pretty much had intended not to go back to school ever again. Did not want another degree. But yeah, it was hard. So you'll be working on the DMN in five years, I can tell. <laughs> So what advice do you have for someone who might be interested in following this same career path that you've taken? I mean, I can't imagine there are going to be that many, but. You're like, you mean priesthood with a detour in vocal yeah, performance? Maybe that. Or just someone growing up in an evangelical Christian background, sensing a call to ordained ministry. Or I don't know. What advice do you have for the for the priests of the future? I mean, I don't know how many people discerning a call in an evangelical church might be listening to this podcast. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but, yeah. But I like to say that the Episcopal Church is one of the best kept secrets in the United States. It's not a church I was ever familiar with growing up. And so as a college professor, I sort of made it my mission to drag as many college students to the local Episcopal church that I could. Cause I just said, Hey, you need to, you know, you may not like this. You may not agree with this, but you at least need to experience this and you might like it. You, you know, you never know. I would say just don't give up and don't, assume like I guess as a child I assumed that what I saw was the only flavor of Christianity that existed. And I think now in this day and time of you know we've got so much information, you know, with phones, you know, right at our fingertips. I didn't have the benefit of that, but just keep keep asking questions and keep keep listening to God. I think it's okay to tell God no, at least in the short term, because I think God will keep working on us until we say yes. And so it's okay to wrestle with God because God's going to win, but that's always a good thing, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm glad God didn't give up on me hmm. because I, I was, I wasn't unhappy as a college professor. I loved doing music. I loved performing. I loved directing but I absolutely feel that I am where I should be right now. And that's not a feeling I've ever had until, until those hands went on my head until I started doing these things that a priest does and how right they felt. I can't, I can't, could never replicate that. I could never, no matter how hard I tried or how hard I worked, I couldn't work that as a musician what was the biggest surprise after you were ordained? Wow. Uh, like a good surprise or a bad surprise or mm. just a surprise? I don't. Let's do one of each. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, the good surprise, I guess, it, and if you've looked at my Facebook, 
page, you realize I'm, I, I love old school anything. And so I love East facing celebration, but a big shock with East East facing celebration was the intimacy that I felt before God, I guess, because when I, sorry about my phone. I mean, my computer going off when I'm West facing the, when you're looking out at the people and you, you know, there's, you know, people getting up and the ushers in the back and there's all this stuff that goes on that you cannot help but notice. But when you're East facing, you don't see all of that. It's just, it's just the people are back there. You know, they're back there. You know that your servers and the acolytes and the deacons over there and you know, they're all there, but it's, it's very, it's a very, very intimate way to celebrate. And I was, that was breathtaking. One of the first times I did it, maybe not the first time because the first time was my first mass and I was terrified, <laughs> but <laughs> that doesn't count. But probably like by, by the time I sort of got over some of that fear, the second or third time that the, the closeness to God that I felt in that moment was absolutely breathtaking. And I guess the flip side of that, if you want a, a, a not a not good surprise, is that I guess I thought that as the priest, every time I celebrated would have that sort of feel. I don't know, you know, as a as a layperson, you don't know what it's like to be a priest. You sort of romanticize and idealize all of the things that you think you're going to get to do and what they're going to seem like or feel like. And the reality is, is it's that just like in everything else, sometimes you don't have that, that rosy feeling, Hmm. you know, sometimes the, the thurible gets dropped or, um, you know, like the other day, my rector father trip was sensing the altar. One of the chains came off of the thurible. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being, I'm the deacon in that mass. And I just kind of looked over and went, Oh, okay. You know, like the, you know, stuff, stuff just happens. It does. Yeah. And it's fine. But I, I would guess that, you know, with all your experience in musical performance, there's, you know, there are days when you're feeling it and days when you're not, but the show has to go on. Right. Yeah. So you just have to get on with it. (laughs) That's true. I, I think that's every Every priest I know sort of looks at it that way. Yeah. The nice thing is Jesus shows up whether we're paying much attention or not. (laughs) That's right. And so if you want to draw the parallels with performing, you know, sometimes I would have what I thought was a terrible performance and I would go back and listen to it and it was really quite good. Or people would come up to me and say, oh, that solo, it meant so much to me. It just spoke to me and ministered to me or, you know, or it was so beautiful or whatever. And I thought, wow, I, I really wasn't, I really wasn't feeling it. But it, in ministry, it's the same thing. It, the, the sacraments are efficacious, whether we're feeling it, thanks be to God or not. Like it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter how we personally feel about it, which is good. Because if that if that were required, no one would be good enough, have the, all the right feelings all the time, and 
you know, if we had to have 100% concentration, 100% feeling, 100% all this stuff, be perfectly pure and spotless before God all the time, no one would be worthy or be able to do it. So yeah, that's true. I think it's a side effect of a certain attitude within American Christianity that associates a particular emotional state with an experience of holiness or whatever, whatever it is. And I think I've come to think of it as the other way around. Like you do your worship, you do your prayers, you read your Bible, you attend your liturgy, whatever it is that you do. And then if God happens to bless that time with a feeling of consolation, that's a gracious gift. And also if God, blesses that time with a feeling of irritation or boredom or um, pointlessness or even, you know, rage sometimes that that's just the gift that you've been given during that time. And, um, and I think I've come to that after years of praying the Psalms and really wrestling with some of the Psalms that are pretty heavy. I mean, there's some Psalms that are, (laughs) <laughs> not very pleasant at all. And and yet they're the center of the office, you know, the center of, of, of the daily office. Um, so I don't know where, it might have been N.T. Wright has a, a book about uh, the Psalms, but it might have been somewhere else that I picked it up. I don't know. But it's like, you know, the Psalms are the whole breadth of human experience. And we bring that whole breadth of human experience into our prayer lives. Like we just bring our naked hearts to God as opposed to, you know, putting on masks and only being perfect in our little pastel suits or whatever. Um, And so it is like, you know, the emotions that come up in worship or even the lack of emotions, just the feeling that we're going through the motions. Um, That's, that's all a response to worship, not evidence that we're worshiping in a correct way. Anyway, that's, I went off on a little sermon there. Sorry. Um, No, I, um, growing up evangelical, a lot of emphasis was placed on your emotional state and whether or not you were feeling it. mm -hmm. And so sometimes, you know, you can, you can take the girl out of evangelicalism, but you can't take the evangelicalism out of the girl. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, that's still, I have a hard time letting go of that as my spiritual barometer because, and I'm, and I, I agree with every single thing you said intellectually. Uh, but growing up where that so much value was placed on, you know, do you feel the love of God in your heart? Do you, you know, do you feel this? Do you feel the Holy Spirit? Did you have an experience? It's uh, then if you don't have an experience, you're not close to God. I mean, I don't believe that, but that's sort of the the conclusion you come to when you grow up like that. And so ha- having to, I've had to teach myself or God's had to teach me that it's okay. It's okay if you don't have an experience. So do you feel now as uh, now that you are leading worship 
both at, at the school and at St. Columbus or wherever, wherever it is that you're presiding or preaching or being a public religious person that you are, do you feel responsible for cultivating a religious experience for the, the audience, if you will, the congregation? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, At least at the school, it's difficult to know exactly what's going on because everybody comes from such a, from all sorts of different religious traditions. Hmm. And so some people are expecting the experience. They go to the screen and praise band churches where it's very hyped up. Um, and some people, you know, I've got Greek Orthodox kids that are used to completely the different end of the spectrum. Wow. I've got a couple of <laughs> Hindu kids that go to Hindu temples. So this is really different for them. Uh, so I try to, at least at the school, I try to give them something that has a, a range of, a range of, how to say this, a range of, I don't want to say options because they can't really opt. But there are, things, there are things that the first graders are going to be, that they're going to completely understand. And then there's stuff that's going to be way over their heads. And there's stuff that the fifth graders are going to think, oh, that is so babyish. Why is she doing that? And there's stuff that the adults are going to say, duh, like we get the, all of that. But yet I'm, I'm, I'm having to speak and do things that that are relevant to all of them at least a little bit. So I guess I like feeling enters into it a little bit, but I I guess I operate more on the 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 cognitive and the understanding and age appropriateness than I am than I do feeling. That's got to be a really hard job to do week in and week out. It, it's, it is fun and it's not, you know, I, I, sometimes I get, I get criticized for going above their heads, but what I found is that children understand a lot more about liturgy and God than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Also, children don't have a problem with high church. Like it doesn't matter how high up the candle I take it. The kids are fine with it. Sometimes the adults aren't. Yeah. The kids love ringing the Sanctus bells. They think they, they're they fighting over it. And when I ask the kids, you know, do you guys want to stand or kneel during the Eucharistic prayer, during the canon, every single time my little group of kids that helped me, I call them my vestry, <laughs> like 12 or 13 kids who helped me, they, all, they always vote kneel. I didn't front load that. I didn't say, oh, I, I want you to kneel, so you need to... No, like they, they're the ones who want to do it. Hmm. So. I wonder if kids are more in touch with their bodies than adults are. Probably. And it's easier for them to kneel. It's easier for them to kneel. <laughs> and they, you know, they can stay on their knees for a long time. Yeah. And it doesn't, you oh. know, their knees are a lot younger, so it doesn't bother them. And they, you know, they like, they like standing, sitting, kneeling, standing, sitting, kneeling, because like they like to move and they mm-hmm. also like, they also like expectations. So liturgical worship where there are expectations and they know what's coming. Think about the fact, I mean, when my kids were little, they liked the same story every single night. Mm-hmm. 
Well, little kids are the same. They they don't want you to change the Lord's Prayer into the modern version because then they don't know how to say it. They want the same, the Lord be with you. They're all going to say and also with you because they're used to write too. I'm not, you know, I'm I'm a write one girl, but I'm not going to change that because that's what they, you know, that's what they're used to. Yeah. Well, okay, let's bring it on home. I, right. I I warned you about this pop culture recommendation. You oh, said no. you might not have one. I'm so bad. I'm so bad at pop culture, but okay. Well, or or something classical. What's just something that isn't like a heavy theology book? Give us something to enjoy. Well, I just finished rereading the Neverending Story. Oh which I love. And I, it's a book I read as a kid and I, I hadn't read it in a really long time. And my husband gave it to me for mother's day. Hmm. So it's really good. And I found out that, and I didn't know this, that the author is German uh, and the book was translated into English, which was something that I didn't, wasn't really important to me as a kid. But I also found out that he, Michael Ende is the name of the author and he is deceased now, of course, but he uh, he was born in Garmisch-Partenkirchen, which is a town I visited last summer in Germany. So I thought that was pretty cool because mm-hmm. I've been to his hometown. Wow. Back when we could travel places. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day. Do you speak um, German? Also, uh, like, I've had German, but I, I, I can't. I'm not. Yeah. I can pronounce as a singer, of course, like I've sung a bazillion leader mm-hmm. uh, and arias in German, but I I can pronounce it. If you hand it to me, I can say it beautifully, but I don't always know it. And I know that the nouns are capitalized and that the verbs are almost always at the end of the sentence. That's all but, you need. Um, <laughs> That's all you need. Yeah. And I'm watching Downton Abbey for the other pop culture thing. I know I'm behind, but it, it came out when I was in seminary and I, I had no time for anything but yeah studies. So I'm just now, we're in season five, I think. So it's really, we're, we're quite gripped and riveted. It's good. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Mother Melanie. You can reach me on Twitter at Apple Tree Pods, and on Facebook, there's a page for Apple Tree Podcasts. Feel free to like and subscribe, review, and share this with anyone who might be interested. You might even check out my other podcast, which is called Notes from Norwich, where I get together with two of my friends and look over The Revelations of Divine Love by Julian of Norwich. The intro music to this podcast is called Cheerful by Bird, Bird, Bird. And the closing music that you're hearing now in the background is St. Mary's Falls by Tom Ganaway. Again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Chris Arnold, and I'll talk to you next time on This Calling. Bye for now.